and welcome to the Stranger Times podcast Halloween special. Uh, first off, boo. Were you scared? Go on, of course you were. Uh, if you had a heart attack just then when I went boo, please do email and tell us as we could really use that kind of free press. Um, and, but by the way, I don't want anybody emailing me and telling me this is really a Halloween special because it's not coming out in Halloween. Because if you've seen any scary movies, and I have seen one and a half, even I know that the, you think the thing's over at the end and, and it's sort of gone and, and the thing's been killed and then it pops up and, goes, and you've got to stab it in the face again. It's all stabby, stabby, face, face again. So think of this podcast as you re-stabbing Halloween in the face. Uh, and on that light and cheery note, hello, Queeve, a.k.a. C.K. McDonald here. I hope you're well and that since we last spoke back in at some point in 2021, uh, you and yours are doing well in these by now precedented times. Uh, the reason I'm doing this surprise album drop, by the way, a la Beyonce, is there is an awful lot of Stranger Times big, big news to share. So brace yourselves. It's about to get epic. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. They said it wouldn't happen. I mean, I'm not sure who they are, but they, they said that, which is hurtful. But it's not true because there is a second Stranger Times book. I've written the thing. Trans World have published the thing. We're all very excited about it. It's called This Charming Man. And it's out uh, on February the 17th, 2022, which is, I believe, next year. I've got a very thin grasp on what date it is anymore these days. But uh, very excited. This Charming Man. It's available for pre-order right now from all good bookshops and their associated websites. Um, and it's coming out February 17th. You may have realised it's in Valentine's week. Uh, be honest, that wasn't planned, but maybe it's worked out well. We're not sure. Because it's my take on vampires and it's nothing says romance like a tale involving creepy, blood-sucking sex pests. I don't know why some people think vampires are sexy. They're not. Get over yourselves. Stop it with your Fifty Shades of Grey nonsense and all that got things. That's not sexy. I know what sexy is, ladies and gentlemen. I'm a middle-aged, tubby, white-haired man with a big beard. I can tell you about sexy. Vampires are not sexy. Tell you what is sexy. It's a new book coming out. I'm not going to lie to you, folks. I am very excited. Not in a sexy way, in a book way. To be honest, I've made this weird. Really should have stuck more to the script. Anyway, moving on. This Charming Man will be available in hardback, ebook, and audiobook formats with the audiobook once again done by the fantastic Brendan McDonald. I haven't actually checked that fact, but I assume it is. I mean, he enjoyed doing the first one. Did a very good job. Probably shouldn't be podcasting this bit, but yeah, it'd be Brendan. Of course it will be. Uh, or if not, there'd be a good reason. Uh, he might have been listening to this and had a heart attack when I shouted, boo, God, if I've killed Brendan off. I mean, on one hand, that's a tragic loss. But on the other hand, Jesus, killing your own narrator by shouting boo in a podcast. If that doesn't get in the paper, what will? Um, <laughs> I really need to stick to the scripts. Anyway, uh, if you'd like to get yourself a signed copy of the book, and I mean the hardback, plus an exclusive, not available in the shops, Stranger Times Valentine's Day card, then if you pre-order the hardback, and again, folks, hardback, and send us proof to Elaine at McFurryInc.com, uh, and that's spelled Elaine, and at is that, that you know what that is, and McFurry Inc. is spelled, fun fact, I had to re-record this podcast because I spelled this wrong the first time. Anyway, uh, McFurry Inc. is spelled, brace yourselves, M-C for Mac, F-O-R for four, uh, I for, you know, I as in I, then Inc., which is I-N-K, so M-C-F-O-R-I-I-N-K dot com. Yeah, I've done that right this time, I think. Anyway, I'm not re-recording it again if I haven't because the dog's going to be back in a couple of minutes. So I've got to get this bloody thing recorded. Uh, anyway, send us proof of getting your hardback pre-ordered to elainemcforeink.com and we will send you a card with a signed insert with my frankly illegible scrawl on it. Um, 
And yeah, as I said, that is the hardback because I'm not signing Kindles or your phone because that's just weird. Uh, and this Charming Man is available for pre-order from Waterstones or any of the many, many fine indie bookshops around the UK and, you know, other countries. Ireland as well have them as well. Uh, nothing if not independent in Ireland. Now, if you're an international person, uh, then blackwells.co.uk does free international delivery to most countries. I mean, they, they were, and we've checked, and Elaine tells me they still are. So that's blackwells.co.uk if you're particularly in America, that's the main one. I think Australia and Ireland, there will be verses of the book coming out there as well about the same time it did last time. Um, but, you know, you're special, but you know why. We won't go into that now. Um, also, the paperback of the Stranger Times book one is coming out in the UK on January the 6th. Or as I'm thinking of it, uh, just in time for, oh shit, sorry, I completely forgot to get you a Christmas present day. Uh, that's very deliberate, by the way, because the publishers did some market research. And apparently my target demographic are awful, awful people. And as if that wasn't enough exciting news, and let's be clear, it bloody well is. I am officially announcing Series 2 of the Stranger Times podcast. That's right. We back, baby. We back. In between writing books, walking dogs and... Actually, those are the only two things I do. Uh, I have been knocking out short stories. Currently, they are being recorded by a galaxy of stars from the comedy circuit. And they will be unleashed on the world from early January 2022, possibly even late December 2021, with an episode every week until the launch of This Charming Man, which I'm assuming by now you've already pre-ordered. If you're not, then, I mean, why are you being a so-and-so about it? Anyway, I'm genuinely really excited. And thank you all. Thank you very much to anyone who's taken the time to tell us how much they enjoyed Series 1. It's always lovely to hear from you. Uh, and if you did, now would be an excellent time to pop up a review somewhere, stick it on social media. If you're in sort of, you know, book clubby type groups on the internet, I mean, if you'd like to start a conversation about how much you enjoyed the podcast and the books, I, for one, wouldn't stop you. Um, so, yeah, let me see. Let me just check the list. Uh, right. Uh, beg people to pre-order hardback. Check. Beg international people to pre-order through blackwells.co.uk. Check. Beg everybody to review podcasts and tell friends. Check. Make some weird banter about something being sexy earlier on in the podcast that you're already regretting. Check. Good. And uh, probably time to crack on. Also, I've just heard the doorbell ring, which I'm pretty sure is the dogs coming back from their walk. So uh, just add some much-needed tension to things. This is every chance that we're about to be descended on by two very excited dogs. Anyway, quickly as we can... Uh, all right, we've done the, all the humiliating bits. Yeah, good, right. Uh, on to the Halloween special. Let's let's get cracking with that. We've done all the sales pitch. Because uh, the great thing about the Strange Times universe is the scope it gives you as a storyteller. For example, in series one, we had that story, I'm sure you remember, read by the brilliant Toby Haydock, called Yes, Prime Minister, which was all about the effects of the sort of Strange Times paranormal world on the world of politics. Well, this time around, this next story is called The Owl and the Pussycat. And it's sort of my take on a noir crime slash spy thriller with obviously a bit of paranormal thrown in um it is narrated by the quadruple threat that is the wonderful eddie brimson a comedian actor author playwright also a vegan but not one of the really judgy ones he's one of the good ones he sat beside me at my birthday when i was having the world's biggest steak didn't make any of the noises you know if you didn't know better you'd think he was just a normal bloke he wasn't actually better than me he was just sitting there having a lovely time being charming we all knew he was better than me because he was eating vegetarian food, but he didn't make a big deal of it. And I, I for one, appreciated that. It's my birthday, after all. Because um, I've known Eddie for uh, years, and he's, he's a wonderful man, a cracking comedian as well. But he also provided me with one of my most memorable moments of the Edinburgh Festival. It was a couple of years ago when I went to see him do a one-man play he had also written called Naughty But. Uh, to be honest with you, 
I had a gap in my schedule. I was up there for a few days and I thought I'd drop in to see him and go for a cheeky point afterwards. I'd never seen him act before, so I had zero expectations. He was a mate trying something new and I thought I'll pop along, be supportive because as a performer at the Edinburgh Festival, it can be a pretty lonely place at times. So it's always good when your mates show up and show a bit of support. Um, so that's how I ended up in a room with four other people in the middle of the day on a Tuesday, quite warm room in Edinburgh. Whereas and Eddie came on stage. And I've got to tell you, folks, the next 55 minutes, I was completely blown away. The quality of the writing and the intensity of the performance was something else. I don't know if you've ever seen five people give a spontaneous and sincere standing ovation. But we did, and it was very well deserved. I'm glad to say by the end of the run, Eddie was deservedly packing the room out and had rave reviews. And but for the pandemic, he'd have been touring around arts festivals in the UK and beyond by now. And I think he is going to be doing that again in the future. So do look out for it. In the meantime, he's also turned uh, Naughty Boy into a book that's available from Amazon and a couple of other places. So do check it out. I mean, not as good as the live play because nothing's as good as live except my, my books. I mean, my, my books are, are better than somebody doing Oh, God, I've, I've undermined this whole thing now. It's made this a sham. Should have just stuck to the script. Anyway, uh, oh, the dogs are looking at me through the window quick. Um, here is the wonderful Eddie Brimson re reading um, the, the story that he's narrated, which is called The Owl and the Pussycat. Of course, I knew that. I knew that. I'd written it, for God's sake. Of course, I knew the name. It's The Owl and the Pussycat. Uh, and uh, as I say, we'll see you back late December, early January for the full season two. But until then, enjoy the Halloween, Halloween special and take it away, the wonderful Eddie Brimson. The Owl. That was what they called him. At least to his face. They may well have had other, less kind nicknames for him around the office, but that was the one that was used in front of him. In truth, he didn't care much. He was a permanent fixture in a department that it was a career suicide to spend longer than a lunch break in. Sir Peter Drake knew he was an unwelcome reminder to his co-workers of their own failure, the ghost of Christmas future. He was surrounded by burnouts, screw-ups, twelve-steppers and fallen angels. Invariably, when someone was assigned to OB12, or guest services as it was unofficially known, they'd explain to anyone willing to listen how there'd been a mistake and they would be reassigned in a couple of weeks. They never were. Within 18 months, they'd either be out of service or have that look about them. Their spirits broken, punching the clock until that bright future became a disappearing past. Occasionally, one would take a more dramatic way out. Dobson had done it in the room. In Drake's chair, in fact. Drake had been quite specific when he asked that nobody sit in his chair. It had a special back support and he had been forced to pay for it himself as the company wouldn't cover it. It had been him who discovered the body. They'd forced him to go and talk to a company-appointed therapist about it. In Drake's opinion, which nobody asked for, people around here were overly concerned with the concept of mental health to the detriment of sound lumbar support. OB12 was one of those departments that the service ended up having not out of want, but necessity. The country often had guests whose privacy, indeed the fact of their very existence, needed to be protected. The National Crime Agency had their witness protection scheme, but this was something different. The NCAs was used by victims of crime who needed to be screwed away or, more often than not, 
people who had taken a deal and given evidence against former friends. OB-12's role differed greatly. There was hardly ever a trial involved. Their guests were defectors, allies who had become unpopular in their own countries, people who knew too much, or in some cases, whose very existence was problematic. Despite what some might say, the British state was not in the business of permanently removing its problems. At least, not as a first choice. At that moment, as Peter sat in the room, the bank of monitors was showing him four guest houses. In the Warrington house, a husband and his wife were eating dinner in silence. The Chinese government had determined that he had been passing information to the British. It had actually been his wife, but it was much of a muchness as far as the service was concerned. They had both been extracted and now they had to be protected. The situation was further complicated by the husband's ongoing rage at his wife's actions. They were averaging a fight a day. The fights, when they'd opened a bottle of wine beforehand, were particularly feisty, stopping just short of physical. The logbook was full of incidents. In Nutsford, a family of four were making the best of it. The 14-year-old girl was a nightmare. She was being denied internet access. Apparently, this was the worst thing you could do to a teenage girl. The Geneva Convention had been cited several times without a hint of irony. The reason for this cruel and unusual punishment was that the last time she'd been online, the teenager had hacked into the place where the Americans kept the good stuff. At some point it had dawned on the Yanks that telling everyone how secure the Pentagon was had been like waving a red rag to every hacker on the planet. They had very quietly started to move the real goodies somewhere else. Most of their own people didn't know. The thinking was solid. Let the Greeks lay siege to Troy while Helen was hanging out on the metaphorical beach in Tahiti. Unfortunately for them, the petulant teenager had snapped metaphorical pictures of Helen with her norks out. The Americans were beside themselves to find out how they'd been a dealer in a crooked game of three-card Monty and somehow still lost. The British had assured them that the teenager, her younger brother and her parents had all fled the country and were currently in Iran where the father's family were from. The Yanks didn't believe it. But crucially, they couldn't disprove it. Eventually, she was to become an asset. But first, the service needed her to become a considerably less hot topic of conversation. The lady in Prestwich was on the most wanted list of several countries, including Britain. No explanation was given to OB-12 as to what the drug trafficker was doing in their care, but that was far from unusual. It's on a need-to-know basis, old boy. Need-to-know. She had recently really got into crochet. When Drake had visited her two months ago, she had given him a rather nice tablecloth. He hadn't been allowed to keep it under the guidelines, but nonetheless he'd taken it also. Under the guidelines... Gifts were not to be refused for fear of offending the guest. The house calls were infrequent, unless absolutely necessary. Last week, Carla Watts had visited the Warrington house, ostensibly to do some maintenance on the cameras. In reality, the wife in the Chinese couple had become alarmingly fond of stroking the hammer in the toolbox and it had been subtly removed. 
Drake's visit to Presswich had been to ascertain whether the subjects flirting with a neighbour could become an issue. Eventually they'd gotten her a dog, for the company, and some supple check-in had determined that the neighbour had an irrational fear of canines. The approach to guest services had drastically changed back in the 90s after what was euphemistically referred to as the West Finchley Affair. A Korean scientist and his wife had been guests until the state security department had found them and slaughtered them both and their two guardians. It had been a nightmare to cover up. The suspicions on how the system had broken down had been confirmed six months later. The problem with teams providing 24-hour protection on site is it means that you potentially had dozens of operatives going to and from sensitive locations every week. All it needed was for an interested party to find one of those operatives and for that person to be a little bit careless. The whole system had needed to be ripped down and restarted from scratch and so from the ashes of Close Protection Team 4 came OB12. Now they stayed hands off and instead monitored everything remotely. As long as the feed was protected, it gave the bad actors nothing to follow. Even if they did hack it, they'd have a devil of a time finding an exact address as it was routed through dozens of dummy locations. And if you identified a watcher, what did it give you exactly? It could be months before they visited one of the houses in person, and then, assuming you successfully managed to follow them and evade all counter-surveillance measures taken... Odds on the location they're visiting wouldn't be the one you were looking for. The only downside was that it did rather remove the personal touch from proceedings. Disappearing for your own protection had become like everything else. If you had an issue then there was a number you could ring and please hold because your call is important to us. The other change around the time of the West Finchley affair had been that someone in high command noticed the cost. Most of the guest houses the service owned were in London. Pretty nice parts too. You couldn't put up a senior Russian defector in Dagenham. It just wasn't done. Not only were those locations some of the most expensive real estate in the country, but they were also situated in the city where the vast majority of foreign intelligence operatives were stationed. This was akin to keeping your chickens next to the fox sanctuary. The arguments about how much a Chinese defector or a Russian scientist might stand out in, say, Market Harbour were categorically refuted when the service deliberately leaked a dummy location to the Israelis as a potential hidey hole for someone they were keen to get reacquainted with. They had declined to follow up on it. If even Mossad couldn't be bothered, then they were on to something. In a rare example of decentralisation... Five London properties were sold and the proceedings were used to purchase 15 in the north and the east of England, plus a couple in Wales. Scotland did not feature, because the Scottish government, despite having no purview over intelligence services, could be problematically Scottish if the mood took them. The 17 houses were fitted out with the most cutting-edge surveillance equipment and OB12 was born. Some deadweight staff got shipped off to monitoring hubs in Manchester, Newcastle and Ipswich and the guests were assured this was all for their safety. The only losers had been certain high-ranking service officials who had been forced to find somewhere else to have their affairs. The head of a particular department may love nothing more than being covered in custard and whipped by a hooker dressed as his nanny 
but he didn't love it enough to go to Norwich. The reason bright young things hated being sent to OB12 so much was that it was not only a punishment for whatever screw-up they'd made, but the only way to get noticed once there was by being part of another screw-up. When OB12 ran smoothly, it was like the toilets flushing. When it worked as it should, nobody was impressed or even noticed it. But if it started malfunctioning, people realised immediately. Not least because invariably, it meant there were catastrophic amounts of shit everywhere. Peter Drake had been at OB12 from the very start. Every now and then, the latest head of department would bring him in for a career chat. People found him unnerving. He'd never applied for the promotion or transfer that almost 30 years of flawless service in OB12 meant he was long overdue. He could have been head himself, if he'd shown the slightest inclination. He was very good at his job, and it was in a department that every one of the constantly rotating heads viewed as something they would take on, to show they were a good team player, ahead of, please God, being moved to somewhere else before the stink could attach itself. Drake regularly took the night shift. Twelve hours spent mostly alone in a room watching monitors making sure every location was secure. Normally the boredom would either drive the watcher to distraction or lull them into unconsciousness. Drake had a special kind of mind and, come to that, bladder. He would sit there attentively. No one could ever recall seeing him getting up to go for a pee. It had been Drake who had spotted that the new Ricardo delivery man to the guest house in Stockport was a Ukrainian hitman. He had correctly guessed that the human trafficker in the Wirral location had been planning to make a run for it. And it was he, Peter Drake, who had realised that one of his co-workers had fallen in love with a French madame at the Middleton address, which meant they'd both been stopped while boarding a flight to Rio. He was the owl. He freaked people out. But he was also flawlessly good at his job. Sitting and watching while mostly nothing happened. Along with Warrington, Prestwich and Nutsford, they currently had the Worsley house up. It was the grandest of the properties, used by VIPs. The man residing there did not have a name. He did, obviously, but they were not given it. He was only known as Mr Smith. It was clear from the songs he sung to himself as he pottered around the lad's kitchen that he was Eastern European from the Baltics, unless Drake was way off. He was probably in his early fifties, but so obsessive in his workout regime that you couldn't be sure. It was a five-bedroom house, but he lived there alone. He spent 30 minutes every day painstakingly grooming his goatee. His only visitors were a senior government official and a couple of service minders. For these visits, all of the cameras were turned off. That was the procedure. There was to be no evidence of the government officials meeting with this man. Mr Smith also got visits from what OB12 referred to euphemistically as an independent contractor, brought up from London especially. She was blindfolded for the last hour of the journey and paid handsomely for her absolute discretion. As she said, she was used to stuff with blindfolds. The procurement of sexual partners was not part of OB12's traditional remit, but Mr Smith was a special case. 
he was being buttered up. Normally for such visits, it was agreed beforehand to turn the cameras off in the bedroom, once a sweep had been done to confirm the property was secure. Mr Smith had decided that events would take place in the front room and on the stairs. He clearly enjoyed the idea of being watched. Drake had watched impassively and logged it. Are there any biscuits? Drake ignored the question. Dobson could be annoying at the best of times and those times had been before he had taken his grandfather's World War II revolver into work, sat at Drake's chair and blowing his own brains out. Now his ghost spent most of its time asking for biscuits. Biscuits it could not eat. Drake had seen the theory somewhere that ghosts were the souls of people who could not pass on until something was settled. He found it hard to believe that of all the things that could fall into that definition, a lack of biscuits could be included. Drake's grandmother had been possessed of the sight, as his family had so grandly referred to it. He himself had paid it no attention until nine years ago when he'd witnessed a four-car pile-up and one of the fatalities had followed him home. The spirit had wandered around his apartment, telling him her life story, and then, after a few days, she had left. There had been no big announcement. She had just faded away. Drake had told no one about that experience, or any of the other times it had happened since. Mostly, people just wanted to talk, and he was fine with that. He politely listened. It did not bother him. In fact, he quite liked the company. He'd never been good at conversation. He was an intelligent man, well-read, conscientious, engaged with the world around him. But when it came right down to it, he never knew what to say. Somehow, he'd just never learned how to make a real connection with other living human beings. It was just one of those things. He'd grown to accept it over time. The good thing about ghosts was they really didn't need you to talk, just to listen. Drake was good at listening, as he was watching. So, they talked to him. He did not mind. I could really go with some chocolate obnobs. He mostly did not mind. Mr Smith had been staying with them for six weeks now. The first time it happened had been after the first week. One morning at 4am, the spirit of a young girl had appeared on the feed. She was what you would probably call a pre-teen. Drake was not an expert on children, having not spent much time hanging around with them, even when he had been one. She stood at the end of the bed in the middle of the night, wearing an anorak. She had a patch over one eye. It looked like an inexpert field dressing. Drake could see her, but he knew that if someone else watched the feed, they'd see nothing. Also, if Drake watched the recording back, no spirit would be visible. He had absolutely no idea why this was, and he'd never attempted to look into it. The main thing he understood about his gift was that the only way things could go really wrong was if he brought attention to it. After standing there for 30 minutes, statue-like, the girl suddenly screamed. It had been a blood-curdling sound that had made Drake spill his tea. Mr Smith had woken up with a start, sitting bolt upright in his bed. 
He stared at the girl for a few seconds, disorientated, and then he burst out laughing. He looked at the girl, then up at the camera, then back at the girl. Was he wondering if she was visible to the watchers? He smiled, mimed a little clap aimed in her direction, and then turned over and went back to sleep. Drake did not know what he had just witnessed. Smith could not only see the spirit, but he seemed entirely unaffected by it. Amused, in fact. On the few previous occasions when Drake had seen a spirit that had also made itself visible to others, the person had been left a gibbering wreck. Then the girl turned and looked directly into the camera. She couldn't see it. Could she? Drake zoomed in closer. Even allowing for the ethereal nature of the spirit's appearance giving her a translucent quality. There was no question that the girl was looking directly at him. She stood there for a few minutes before she gradually faded away. The following morning, when Drake had finished his shift and driven home to his little flat in Chalton, she had been waiting there for him. Unlike the others, she had not spoken. Instead, she had followed him around and baefully stared at him with her one good eye. He tried to ignore her, gone about his day as normal, eating dinner at 9am, watching a recording of a nature documentary series he enjoyed. All the time she followed him into every room, always there. Even in his car on the way back to work, he'd glance in the rear view mirror and there she was, sat in the back, staring at him. That was not the worst part though, that was the dreams. They had started on the third night. Drake wasn't even sure if he could call them dreams. They felt more like memories. Not his, but still they felt horribly real. Such terrible things. Only one featured the girl, although they all featured Mr Smith. He was a sadist who had used the time of war to do such unspeakable things. Drake would awake in a cold sweat to find the girl standing at the end of his bed, silently looking at him with that one good eye. The only time she was not in the room with Drake was when he could see her in the monitors, following Mr Smith from room to room. The man seemed to enjoy the attention. At one point, as he had sat at the marble breakfast bar eating his dinner, he had poured a second glass of wine and left the glass on the counter in front of her. He offered a silent toast and then done the same to the camera. Whatever the man was, it was not fully human. He had the sight, but that only seemed to be part of it. In the dreams, the memories, there were killings. So many killings. They often seemed to have a ritualistic nature to them, as if he was drawing power from the act. As the days went by, Drake became more and more aware that he was watching a true monster. Beneath the smile and the suave manners, there lay something less than human. It dawned on Drake one night that perhaps the girl was not trying to torture him by showing him those memories. Perhaps she was looking for assistance. He turned the bedside lamp on and sat on the edge of the bed in his pyjamas. Is that it? Are you asking for help? The girl nodded. I don't... What can I do? I watched that 
that's all, I watch. She had just looked at him, and on it had gone, day after day. More memories, some repeated, always the worst ones. Drake had stopped sleeping. His boss, Adler, had brought him into the office to check if he was okay. His uncharacteristically dishevelled appearance had been noticed. He could see she was worried. Losing Drake would be like being the person who came in and somehow knocked the office wall down. Drake had assured her he was fine, because what else could he say? He was not a religious man, perhaps oddly so considering the gift. He, unlike most people, categorically knew there was something after death. Still, what little time he had spent in the company of religion had left him feeling empty. Nothing there had spoken to him. He knew he had a soul, and he was finding himself filled with a dreadful suspicion that if he did not help this girl and the others, so many others, his soul would join those of the tortured. At the weekly ops meetings, Adler had blithely announced that Mr Smith was moving on soon. She had said that he had negotiated himself an upgrade to a villa in the Cayman Islands. Drake wasn't sure if she had meant that literally, but it seemed clear from the feed that Smith was excitedly preparing for a trip. Time was running out. Drake installed an untraceable browser on his home PC and started searching for how to get a gun. Lots of people said they could provide it, but he didn't trust any of the avenues available to him. Perhaps it would be better to turn up with a hammer and rely on the element of surprise. Smith was fit and powerfully built though, and Drake was all too aware that the man was no stranger to violence. He revelled in it. In contrast, Drake, by some long-forgotten training, had never had much aptitude or call for violence. He didn't know what to do. He tried not to look into the corner of the sitting room as he knew the girl was there, as always, staring at him. He jumped with surprise as there was a knock at the door of his flat. This was unusual. Firstly, there was a buzzer outside that people used. In theory, nobody was able to wander into the building and start knocking on doors. Secondly, he was expecting no one and nothing. He rarely got deliveries and never visitors. There had been that one time with the over-enthusiastic Jehovah Witnesses who must have tailgated someone through the outer door, but it was only 7am and Drake had just come home from work. Not even Jehovah Witnesses were that enthusiastic. He was set to ignore it as someone knocking in error when it happened again. He stood up and he walked to the door, checking the peephole. All he could see was the fading paint on the far wall and the cracked lighting fixture which the building management company had still not fixed. He needed to be careful. There were procedures in place so that if one of the watchers felt that someone was trying to contact them, they needed to inform management immediately. Drake took the sanctity of the system seriously. He slipped the chain on the door and carefully opened it. A black cat slipped effortlessly by him and into the flat as calmly as if it were returning home. Drake did not like cats. He was allergic, in fact. The one time he tried to have one as a pet, it had led him to sneezing constantly for a week before it ran off. It ranked second only to his disastrous attempt at having a flatmate on the list of awkward experiences 
he did not wish to repeat. When he walked back into the sitting room, the cat was curled up on the chair in the corner, right beside the girl. Is that with you? She nodded. I don't get on terribly well with cats. This elicited no response. Technically, we're not supposed to have pets in the building. Again, no response. Drake shrugged. In truth, while they weren't supposed to, lots of people had pets. He regularly met people coming in and out with dogs on leads. He'd even seen someone carrying in a vivarium for snakes at one point. He looked at the girl and then at the cat before turning into the kitchen. He opened a tin of tuna that he had bought six months ago and placed it on a plate before filling a bowl with the last milk he had in the fridge. He placed them both on the floor in the living room and then retired to the bedroom. Drake awoke in confusion, pulled out of a deep and peaceful slumber. There was that moment of awful panic. He hadn't set the alarm. He'd not slept in so long that there hadn't been a need for one. Even before that, he'd always awoken 15 minutes before it. Now he had been woken by the sound of his phone ringing. He was late. He'd never been late. Not that anyone but him had noticed. But he'd been on time every working day of his life. It was a matter of personal pride. Come wind, come rain, come snow. He had also taken a grand total of three sick days. Many of his co-workers in OB12 averaged that in a month. He flapped around and eventually found his glasses on the nightstand, which allowed him to locate his phone in the bed. He grabbed it just before it rang off. Hello? Hi, Peter, it's Samantha. There was a moment of confusion. Samantha Adler? Yes, of course. Drake saw the clock on the wall, just after 3.30. He wasn't due in until 6pm. Is everything all right? Yes, sorry, did I wake you? No, no, said Drake. I was just... He looked in the corner of the room. The girl stood beside the wardrobe with the cat curled up at her feet. Feeding the cat. Right. I didn't know you had a cat. Yes, I do. Lovely. Then there was a lull in the conversation that Drake knew all too well, where the other person was expecting him to say something and nothing was coming. So, said Adler, again, apologies for disturbing you and the cat, but I was wondering, would you mind dropping over to the Worsley house before your shift? Our guest is complaining about a camera making buzzing noises and we've been told no matter what to keep him happy. I see. I suppose I could. Thanks very much. I wouldn't ask, only Carol is out sick again and Dave has plans as soon as his shift is done. I'd really appreciate it. Sure, no problem. Drake put the phone down and looked at the girl who stared back at him with her one good eye. The gravel in the driveway crinkled under the wheels of the car as Drake pulled up. Dobson had once described this area as perfect for a left-back for United who only got his games in the cup. Drake wasn't much of a sports fan, but he understood the reference. Rich, but not super rich. His toolbox lay on the seat beside him. He looked into the back seat where the cat and the little girl sat quietly. He addressed her in the mirror. I don't know if I can do this. I shall try. I... 
and no I should. Drake closed his eyes for a moment, and when he opened them again, the girl was gone. The cat sat there licking itself as if unconcerned with anything in this world. Drake took a moment to compose himself, dabbed at his eyes with a tissue, and when he was satisfied that he looked himself once again, he opened the car door. The cat shot out and disappeared into the hedge. He debated going looking for it, but what would be the point? Cats drew a law unto themselves at the best of times, and he was working under the assumption that the feline in question wasn't typical of its breed. Drake placed the stepladder against the wall and his toolbox on the ground before ringing the doorbell. Then he pulled his ID out from his jacket pocket and held it up to the camera to the left of the bell. The voice of Dave Walsh came out of the intercom. Who is it? Peter Drake. What's the weather like? The forecaster's got it right again. This was a coded message. If Drake had said anything else, procedure was that Walsh would sound the alarm and an armed response unit would be there within 12 minutes. The phrase, the forecaster's got it right again, had been chosen carefully as the only phrase about the weather no British person would ever say by accident. Reason for visit. Maintenance. Requested by guest. Order 4918. The security confirmation and the login done, Walsh's voice became chatty. Hang on a second, I'll let him know you're here. He's in the kitchen, cooking. A minute later, the door opened and Mr Smith stood there. He seemed bigger in person, more imposing. His smile would have looked warm to the casual observer, but Drake had seen it many times in dreams. Such horrible dreams. Welcome. Come on in. Did you find the place okay? Yes, thank you. He picked up his gear and followed Smith inside. Drake had actually been there numerous times over the years, having set it up initially, in fact, but policy was to always treat it as the subject's home while they were staying there. As Smith led him down the hall, that was easy to believe. He walked with the relaxed gait of someone who owned his surroundings. The man wore a linen shirt, chinos and deck shoes. Drake followed him into the kitchen. As he looked at the man's back, flashes of images from all those memories came flooding back. Drake's stomach was a roiling mass, a wave of nausea passing up through his body. Smith took a seat at the breakfast bar and rejoined the glass of wine he had poured earlier. The strong smell of lamb cooking filled the room. Smith liked to cook a whole leg of lamb, despite it only being him. He'd eat a portion and then throw the rest away. The waste had come up in meetings, but Adler had instructed them to ignore the man's little eccentricities, as she'd put it. Drake could feel the sweat on his skin, despite it being a cool March day. So what seems to be the problem? Smith pointed at a camera in the ceiling. It's that one. It makes a buzzing noise. Right. Drake stopped and listened. I can't hear anything. It comes and goes, said Smith, with a dismissive wave of his wine glass. Sorry, I'm being rude. Would you like a drink? Drake tried to smile. I can't, thank you. On the job. Right, he said with a laugh. Of course you are. Drake pulled out his phone and dialed the office. 
Walsh picked up on the second ring. Hello? I need you to take the kitchen camera offline. Okie dokie. Drake hung up the call. Walsh's inability to say the word yes was annoying. Wilco, Roger, Candu, Yesarino. The man managed to make the simplest word in the English language an unwelcome expression of individuality. Like a novelty tie. Drake placed his toolbox on the marble countertop and opened it. He concertinaed out before him. That's a lot of tools for a little camera. Well, you never know. Drake glanced at the girl who stood in the corner of the room briefly and then looked away again. He grabbed the stepladder and placed it below the domed camera in the ceiling, the one that offered a 360 degree view of the kitchen. The green light beneath it flashed red briefly and then went off. Drake picked up his Phillips head screwdriver and ascended. So, said Smith, the tone in his voice changing. Are you the one? I'm sorry, said Drake. The one that can see her. Drake wobbled on the ladder slightly. He tried to maintain a level pitch in his voice. I don't understand what you mean. Smith laughed. (laughs) I think you do. Sorry, how rude of me. I should hold the ladder for you. There's no need. Drake looked down as Smith moved across and placed his hands firmly on the ladder. I insist, the man beamed up at him. Drake looked at him for a moment and then, absent of any better ideas, looked up and started unscrewing the dome of the camera. Does she show you? Drake, recovered from the initial shock, maintained the casual tone as he worked. Does who show me what? Our little friend. I assume if you can see her, then she can show you. Drake removed the dome and made a show of looking at the perfectly working camera inside. I don't know what you're referring to. As a matter of strict policy, we do not discuss clients with anyone outside of the immediate operational groups. Blah, blah. Yes, yes, said Smith. I know. I knew from the moment I saw you. You're the one. I could give you some bullshit story about things that happen in time of war, but let's not kid ourselves. Drake's hand shook as he disconnected the power and then rotated the camera to check the tracking. Are you afraid to look at me? The voice was mocking now. No, I'm just trying to fix the camera. We both know there's nothing wrong with the camera. Drake mumbled something, unable to come up with words. He kept thinking of the screwdriver lying sweaty in his right hand. From here he could jab it down, try and get it straight through the man's eye. His arms felt like jelly dough, barely able to move. Suddenly, he felt terribly weak. The man continued in a chatty tone. You know what they say. If you find the things you were put here to do, then you never really work a day in your life. I loved it. I was really good at it. Really good. He laughed. Well, you saw. I miss it too. Hopefully it won't be much longer before I am back doing the one thing I am truly good at. The world belongs to men like me. Men who can take what they want. 
The ladder shook silently as he spoke. Drake didn't look down. He placed the dome back on the camera and started screwing it back on. I like your fear. The taste of it. I've missed it. Look at me. The last three words came out as an inhuman growl. Drake took a deep breath. He had decided on the way over. He would do it and then immediately leave the house and go to the reservoir on the M62 motorway. The one near that farmhouse that was famously in the middle of the motorway as the owner refused to move. Every time he had passed it, it had looked nice. He didn't like the idea of falling into rocks. Somehow water didn't seem so bad. He could go off the side of the waterfall there. From a certain height, landing on the water would kill him just the same. And besides, he couldn't swim. That seemed like the best way. He would not want to answer questions, as he couldn't begin to explain. He had always taken pride in his work, and he didn't want to be the man who had broken protocol. He finished screwing the dome back into place, the shake in his hands easing. He knew what he must do now. Look at me! Drake took his hands from the dome. He removed the screwdriver from his sweaty palm, adjusting his grip. As Drake finally looked down, he saw Smith's eyes. They were glowing red now. His mouth below it spread into a wide grin. Drake pulled his right hand back and stopped. Over Smith's shoulder, he had noticed the girl. She stood there and clearly shook her head, telling him no. Drake froze for a moment and then he dropped the screwdriver. The sound of it hitting the tiled floor was like an alarm bell waking him from his sleep. He quickly descended the ladder, not looking at Smith. Right, that seems fine to me. Let us know if the noise comes back and we'll replace it. Drake's phone rang. It was Walsh confirming that the camera had come back online. He snatched up the screwdriver from the floor and shoved it back into the toolbox, slamming it shut. Throughout, Smith stood there, his hands on the ladder, saying nothing. Right, I shall get out of your way. Enjoy your dinner. Drake placed his hands on the ladder. Smith looked back at him. His eyes were their normal brown colour, but the veneer of politeness and charm had dropped from his face, leaving a sneer. You didn't do what you came here for. Yes, I did. It all seems fine. Drake pulled the ladder and Smith reluctantly released his grip. He snapped it shut, picked up his toolbox and headed straight for the front door. Smith did not follow him out. Goodbye then. He opened the door, exited and then shut it again. It was only as he reached the car that he realised he had felt something brush against his leg. He looked down and around but there was nothing to be seen. He folded the ladder into the boots and shoved the toolbox in beside it. He climbed into the front seat and threw the car into a sloppy three-point turn before exiting the drive. 100 yards down the road, the car came to an abrupt halt as Drake opened the door just in time and vomited onto the road. He wiped his mouth with his handkerchief and looked at his hands. They were still shaking. Then he glanced into the rear-view mirror. The little girl was sat in the back. For the first time, she smiled at him. 
and then she was gone. In the absence of any better ideas, Drake went to work. He relieved Walsh after a brief bout of their usual awkward small talk. He took up his station just in time to watch Smith eating the dinner he had been preparing. It appeared it didn't agree with him as he left it half finished. As Drake watched him scrape the remnants into the food bin, he realised that for the first time in a long time, he was watching him alone. The little girl was neither on the screen watching Smith or in the room with him. Drake was alone. Well, almost. I could really go for some custard creams. Maybe one of them vanilla swirl things. Drake continued to watch as Smith stomped around the house. He seemed to be in a bad mood, restless. He threw the occasional surly glance in the direction of the cameras, but otherwise there was no acknowledgement. He half-watched the Champions League football match before hitting the gym for some bag work, a quick shower, and he was in bed by 11.30pm. Drake duly logged it. Where do you stand on the big... Ah, Jaffa kicks a kick or biscuit debate? Biscuit, said Drake, surprising himself. He hadn't spoken to Dobson in months. In the other houses, lives continued as normal. The Chinese couple argued, but it was a pretty mild one for them. The Nutsford family all sat down and watched a film together, a very rare event. Pixar, one of the toy stories. Drake couldn't tell which one. The lady in Presswich did some crochet, read a book and then brought a device into the bathroom with her for some quality alone time, as Dobson used to call it, and then went to bed. Everyone was all tucked up in bed and logged as such by midnight. At 1.37am, just as Drake was opening his sandwiches, ham and egg, the lights came on in the Worsley house. Smith lay in bed looking across the room at where the girl stood looking at him. He laughed. Oh, for God's sake, is it you again? He tossed the pillow in her direction. Peace off. The girl stood perfectly still and just watched him. Smith glanced up at the camera. This is so boring. He turned over as if about to go back to sleep, and jumped as he noticed the cat sitting quietly on the other side of the room. For fuck's sake! He tossed another pillow in the cat's direction, but it dodged out of the way, darting quickly over to the corner to stand under the camera. Drake tried to move it, but the camera in the bedroom wasn't 360. There was a blind spot directly under it. He couldn't see what was happening, only Smith's face. He watched as the smug smile disappeared to be replaced by something else, something new. Fear. During the internal inquiries, of which there had been several, Drake would sit and watch this footage over a hundred times. You could follow Smith's eyeline as it went up from looking down at the floor at the cat to slowly rising up as if something was growing before his very eyes. The last you saw of him was Smith's look of pleading terror as he looked into the camera. No! 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 And then static as it went dead. The other cameras picked up on the sound of screaming and extreme violence. 
Drake had dutifully rang the number to log a potential security problem and then he'd rang and woken Adler up. The inquiries would each in turn find that he had acted impeccably. A commendation was added to his file for his swift response. They were also very keen that he not talk about this. A big part of OB-12's job was discretion about all manner of things and this was something different and his superiors had gone to great lengths to try and find an explanation, as well as hiding the fact that they didn't have one. When the armed response team showed up, they had found nobody else at the property. No alarms had been triggered, and there was no sign of forced entry or exit. Mr Smith himself, or rather what was left of him, had been found in the bedroom, all over the bedroom. Drake wasn't there in person, but he had seen the photos. The remains were mostly smeared across the walls, though there had been bits on the ceiling too. The audio had been analysed, but it didn't help a bit. One of the experts swore that they had heard Smith at one point screaming in ancient Sumerian, but seeing as there was no evidence that Mr Smith would have spoken this language, that was dismissed. The only thing everybody agreed on was that whatever happened... It had been fast and incredibly painful. One of the auditors had passed the comment that he wouldn't have wished it on his worst enemy. Drake said nothing. Soon enough, life went back to normal. If something truly inexplicable happens, it is like a rock being tossed into a stream. After the initial splash, life just flows around it and on it goes. Drake's life too got back to normal. Once again he was able to go home and sleep peacefully, content in his small little life. He just needed to remember to feed the cat before he went to sleep. She did not like to be kept waiting, and she could be quite the handful. Thank you for listening to the Stranger Times podcast. If you've enjoyed it, then please leave a rating wherever you get your pods. It really does help. And the Stranger Times novel by C.K. McDonnell is out and is available from all good bookshops and some bad ones. And check out strangertimes.com for more weird news and to sign up to the newsletter, where you can also get yourself a sweet free ebook containing some Stranger Times short stories. This podcast is produced by Rob B at BEE, with Ed Wilson exec producing, and all materials are copyright McFory Inc. Limited. All of the short stories are written by me, CK McDonald. And the music is done by Alan McGuire with John McCullough as musical Sven Galley.